Then a demon-possessed or a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, that is Jesus, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw, and the people were amazed. And they said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Um, it's always a challenge every week as we preach to uh, try to capture what we'll call the big idea or a main idea, and we prayerfully seek to do that. And if I was to boil it down for our passage that we're looking at today, I would say that it's something like this, that with the witness of great power comes the weight of great responsibility, because that's what we see going on here in the exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. The idea here is that the more we witness, the more we're privy to God's power and his presence and his provision in our lives, then the more accountable we are to recognize reality for what it is. That there is really a God, a good God, a loving God, who is at work in this world to bring about a plan of redemption to reconcile men to himself. And this is what the Pharisees were missing. God was manifesting himself, making his presence and power known through Jesus, through the healing and the delivering that we see him doing here and in other places we've already looked at, through his miracles he performed. And Jesus is, is bringing his audience to the point here where he's, he's forcing the issue. He's saying there is no neutral ground anymore. You know, that's why he says that whoever's not with me is against me. The evidence is there. And so it's an indictment on the Pharisees' heart condition or anyone's heart condition who witnesses the amazing things that God does and yet still denies the reality of who he is. Um, I'm going to give you a, a, an analogy that's much more mundane and on a personal level, a personal story, to kind of illustrate this idea of... Um, <laughs> Witnessing greatness, great power, but denying the reality, okay? So I, growing up, um, played soccer. I love, still love soccer, more watching it than playing. I was never very good. Um, but uh, I was uh, the start of a new program that our, our school opened for men's soccer. When I was in middle school, I started playing. And so needless to say, since it was a brand new program, we were not very good. And one of the teams we dreaded playing every year um, uh, was uh, uh, Oneonta. Those of you who are familiar with that area, um, Oneonta had a rich heritage 
of soccer success. I mean, it is the location of the National Soccer Hall of Fame, if you didn't know that, and for a reason. Uh, they were perennial favorites for to win the states or to at least be in the running. And so we were watching, you know, one of our first years of, you know, this new program at our school, watching the results in the paper, and they're rolling over other teams, six nothing and seven nothing. I mean, if you don't know much about soccer, those are not, those are ugly score lines, okay? Um, so, but we, you know, we had a guy on our team who is, you know, you always have this, at least one guy, he's pretty cocky, and, and you need that too, if you look at the greats in sports, you need some confidence, right? But he was cocky to the point of just being blind to reality. So he's like, oh, they're not that good. We'll take them. And so our day came and we, we play against Oneonta and we lose 11 to one. And, um, you know, we're starting to get more into kind of the American football scoreline at that point. Um, and incidentally, I was the one who scored the one goal, but it was only because um, the defender of their team trying to clear the ball happened to kick it off my knee and it ricocheted into the goal. And it was a small miracle that I and my team were that close to their end of the field to begin with that something like that could happen. So that's the kind of day it was. And yet afterwards, in talking with this guy, like, he was just unfazed. He's like, oh, we had a bad day. They weren't that good. We could take him if we played him again. And I'm just thinking to myself, you must not have been on the same field as I was and witnessed what I just did. You know, there are just some people who, despite how plain and obvious whatever it is is before them, will just deny reality. And sometimes that's because we're trying to deny something that we don't want to believe about ourselves. And for him and for us, I think it was, you know, not wanting to you know, own up to the fact that we kind of stunk in our first years of this new program. So that's a much more, you know, mundane and innocuous illustration. But this idea here is that where God has made himself known in great power, we are all the more accountable to acknowledge that power and to respond to it rightly for where it comes from and with worship and lives of obedience. And so what I want to do to kind of um, illustrate that point and, and kind of add a framework um, on which we can build it is talk about four other principles that really can stand alone by themselves from this text. Um, four other conclusions I'm going to draw that when you put them all together can help you to see why I'm arriving at the big idea here being that with the witness of great power comes the weight of great responsibility. So four Four points here, four conclusions from this text. And a lot of these at face value, when you hear me share the, big, the, you know, the, the principle, are going to think, well, that's, yeah, I agree with that. That's pretty plain and obvious, nothing novel, nothing new. Um, but sometimes those are the most important truths that bear repeating. We don't want to gloss over and we really want to lean into and we'll experience much fruitfulness when we do. All right, so the first one is this. The spiritual realm is real and it impacts the physical realm. Okay, the spiritual realm is real, and it impacts the physical realm. All right, so just to then draw that more specifically to um, a, a point, uh, the, 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 the struggles, the um, suffering that this man was undergoing, his blindness and his inability to speak was directly rooted in a spiritual issue. Okay, and do you see that? That Matthew is drawing out that point. He doesn't say it in those exact words, but he, he describes this man, no coincidence, the words that he used as demon oppressed. And, and then he says that this man also uh, could not see or speak 
Jesus heals him so he can now see and speak. And the Pharisees, who were against Jesus, could not deny the power. But And what they say happened was a deliverance. Okay? So this man's physical problems were rooted in a spiritual issue. And I bring that up just to say it's not a reality that we do well to live by in the West, even as Christians. It's not something I think that even I, or, or um, for much of my journey of following Jesus and, um, and, and much of the church in the West um, really lives in light of with that lens before them. I was talking to somebody at a mentor retreat last week who was in the foreign mission field who was just talking about how the, the huge disparity in how overt spiritual warfare is and its impacts um, in Africa where he was versus here where Satan really enjoys flying under the radar. He is alive and well and active, but in ways that often go missed by people, even God's people. So why does this matter and what will it change? Well, if we are not aware and living with that lens before us, then it may be that we ourselves or those around us that we love are unnecessarily living in bondage, experiencing suffering and pain that isn't just a physical issue but is rooted in something that is actually spiritual. Now, some physical issues are just that. They're just physical issues because we live in a broken world. Some um, issues that appear to be emotional um, or you know, are just that. They're emotional issues due to chemical imbalances or the fact we live in a, in a fallen world. But some of the very same things that could just be physical or emotional can actually be spiritual. And we see that here with a guy who was blind and could not speak and when Jesus delivered him, the healing came in the form of now he could see and he could speak once again. Do you live with that lens before you? If you do, you'll begin to pray that way. Not always with perfect discernment, um, but you'll at least have that category and you'll be able to bring that to God and ask for discernment or just pray in faith that if it is this, if it is spiritual nature, God, would you deliver me or this person? Would you bind Satan and his effects and impact in my life or this person's life in Jesus' name and see perhaps healing or freedom that you need or that those around you need? Okay, so number one, the spiritual realm is real. And it impacts, it has a real impact, or can, on the physical realm. We see that with the man who is suffering in this passage. Number two, there is both good and evil power at work in this world. I'm talking about in the spiritual sense, although that is also true in the physical realm. And like will not oppose like. Good will not oppose good. Evil will not oppose evil. This is the flawed argument that the Pharisees are making here to try to stick it to Jesus, to try to undermine his credibility. And um, notice they don't deny the power. They don't say, oh, nothing really happened here. It's just assumed. They can't deny the fact that this man's been healed and even their attribution of the problem to being a spiritual one in nature. But what they say is that the power wasn't from God, but was from the devil. And this is what sin does at its at its most overt, sin just come, becomes completely irrational. Ironically, the blind ones here were the Pharisees, right? Um, it, it's so irrational that I was just trying to think of another analogy that's more maybe down to earth or whatever. And given that today is Sunday, I was thinking about football. It would be as if an offensive lineman or the, or the center, we'll say, who is an offensive lineman, hikes the ball to his quarterback, turns around, runs him down, and tackles him. And that that's his strategy every play. They're never going to make forward progress on the field, and they're never going to win the game. 
what the Pharisees were proposing was that ridiculous, right? And Jesus was calling them out on, on that. Satan's not going to drive out Satan, so the only logical conclusion, Jesus says, is that the power that I just used to deliver this man did not come from Satan. It was from God. All right, so I'm going to spend as much time on making a disclaimer here as I did on this original point, because we do know from Scripture and from probably experience that Satan can masquerade as an angel of light, right? That there can be things that appear to be good, which ultimately underneath it all are not. Um, and I'm going to give you a specific example, more by way of an illustration, not to pick on this one in particular, but um, in recent years I've come across... Um, people who had experience with and read things about Reiki, which is a, a method of energy healing that you may have heard of before. Um, it's become increasingly accepted in hospitals and universities. Um, I, I think, pretty sure Harvard Med, I had a person uh, who said his father was offered um, Reiki as a part of his healing process in you know, Columbia uh, University. And then I'm gonna read to you a quote from Johns Hopkins website where they describe what the practice of Reiki is and it's on their website because it's something that is acceptable for their own um, physicians to use if they so choose or for their patients to utilize. Okay, so on their website, just so we understand here what it is I'm talking about, and listen, by the way, for some of the language even that's used here that could kind of masquerade as good or as an angel of light or as something that we as Christians would say, well, yeah, that's good and that's biblical and I've heard of that. It says, Reiki is a very specific form of energy healing in which hands are placed just off the body or lightly touching the body, as in, in quotes, laying on of hands. Okay, that's an expression that comes right out of scripture. Reiki can also be done, quote unquote, long distance as a form of prayer, although that's just a weird, misleading way to describe it because everything I know about Reiki and from what I've been told is that um, it's just this nebulous, impersonal energy force. It's not like you're praying to a personal being, but they call it prayer here. And the practitioner is seeking to transmit universal life energy to the client. The intention is to create deep relaxation, to help speed healing, reduce pain, and decrease other symptoms you may be experiencing. A couple things right up front. Um, I'm gonna read to you or talk about in a moment the experience of a woman who um, was a former Reiki master who became a, a Christian. And one of the things she said when she was operating in her Reiki and New Age circles was that, listen, there were a lot of people who were practicing Reiki who really thought they were doing a good thing, who genuinely cared about other people and were kind of unwitting agents of, of the enemy and his power, okay? So that's number one. Number two, I'm not here to say it's completely fraudulent in the sense that it actually doesn't have real impact. Because again, point number one, there's a spiritual realm and the spiritual can really have an impact on the physical in this sense, in a way that masquerades as an angel of light. So this is where discernment is needed. So in this article, which was in Christianity Today, the title of it, by the way, was, I was a New Age healer, then I realized I wasn't the one doing the healing, which kind of says it all. Um, she speaks of her experience and gives the account um, of running in those New Age circles and talked about how the emphasis was on self-healing, how the power resides within oneself, or at the very, at the very most, that it's a, it's an, it's, a, it's an energy and a power in the universe that we are able to harness. And so ultimately, the, the, um, the ability to fix and to heal resides within us, a person, people. 
Okay, this was kind of the emphasis she experienced and she had an interesting story that you can read if you look it up by that title, that article and it's full. She kind of gives her story, but she grew up, she had different, God kind of intervened in her life at different points along the way. People came into her life, Christians brought her to church. She actually would describe it as kind of a quasi relationship with Jesus. She loved God, but she was dabbling in both of these worlds. And anyway, while she was still a practitioner of Reiki, the spirit began to kind of work in her, convict her, and she started to share her faith with others while still practicing Reiki and saying that, hey, ultimately, you know, ultimately who you need is Jesus, not me. Because she just felt weird about like everybody giving her the glory as if somehow the power resided within her. And she was shunned. I mean, that's just taboo within the New Age circle to attribute the power to something outside of ourselves or, or at least specifically to Jesus, okay? So she was excluded from those circles when she started doing that. All right, to bring it kind of back to our passage. So my point in bringing it up, Reiki is an example of something, this practice of energy healing that appears to be good in nature and has a real physical impact that people experience as relief, maybe even healing, um, and yet its source is not God. Whereas in our passage, what we see is Jesus saying here and teaching, it's illogical to believe that it would be by the power of Satan that Jesus was casting out a demon from this man, okay? Um, so how do we distinguish between these two? The difference, the key criteria that we need for discernment is who at the end of the day is getting the glory and the attention, all right? Again, Satan will masquerade as an angel of light all day long doing things that appear to be good so long as it's misdirecting or redirecting people's attention away from the true source of healing and life in Jesus and to themselves or some other nebulous entity. Okay, he, he has the power to bring what appears to be relief. He may have been the source of pain to begin with and so he's just pulling back on that if it's going to convince somebody to turn their eyes away from Jesus in some other location. In contrast to this, every time so far we've seen Jesus healing or casting a demon out or performing a miracle, he's using it as a basis to say, the kingdom is coming. I, and I'm inaugurating, the king is here. The king is the one ultimately who you need to look to to find ultimate hope and ultimate healing. Amen. So com two completely different um, uh, end games in terms of who's getting the glory which is important to, to be able to understand and discern why in this case, Jesus is saying it's ridiculous for you to think that me casting out this demon would be by the power of Satan. Satan wouldn't want that because Jesus was giving the glory. All right, so that's the second point, the second conclusion. There's both good and evil power at work in the world, but like will not oppose like. Evil, Satan's not gonna cast out Satan. Thirdly, Jesus has ultimate power and authority over Satan and demons. Another one that may seem plain and obvious to you, but this is just so critical. It's one of these things that if you live with that truth before you on a daily basis and believe that we live in a world that's both physical and spiritual, it can be incredibly profoundly um, impactful in your daily walk, daily journey through life. Okay, so this is evidenced, the fact that Jesus is stronger. He has ultimate authority and power. First, in the healing itself, right? Jesus didn't have to ask Satan for permission to deliver this man from his bondage and to heal him. Satan had no say in it. He had to flee at the presence of Jesus. 
But Jesus reiterates this through the illustration he gives of the strong man. When he says that in order to plunder the strong man's house, first you have to go in and bind the strong man. Then you can plunder the house. Well, if you, you know, draw the logical conclusions from that, the only way you're going to bind the strong man to begin with is if you're stronger than the strong man. Jesus is that one who binds the strong man. So to go back to the article, by the way, her name is Nicole Watt, the one who's the, the former Reiki master who uh, became a Christian and, and gave up that life. She kind of describes some of her story and testimony and kind of the journey she was on and her experience of the power of Jesus being superior to that of the power of the devil. And I'm just going to read some of her story to you. She says this, I was becoming increasingly uncomfortable with the Reiki world. Every day I felt a greater burden of conviction to tell people that whatever healing they experienced during Reiki sessions was a gift from God, not me. He was the answer to all their questions, problems, and longings. Yet saying this was forbidden. New Age philosophy treats this world as an illusion, a school for our spiritual mastery, where many gods, spirits, and guides are honored. To speak of Jesus as one deity among many, equal in power and authority, that's permitted. But to speak of him as the way, the truth, and the life is out of the question. Despite my discomfort with Reiki, I remained powerfully attached to the joy and the rewards of helping people. <clears throat> I feared quitting it for the sake of Jesus. What if people stopped seeking me out for healing and I returned to my drifting ways? She was obviously a little confused here still in thinking that way. So I made what seemed to be a, a fair compromise. I quit teaching Reiki methods and told my students about my faith in Jesus. But... I continued offering Reiki sessions for my clients, asking the Holy Spirit to operate underneath the surface. Soon enough, I came face to face with the foolishness of serving two masters. The crisis point arrived when a friend asked if I would teach Reiki to her and another woman. I agreed to the class, convincing myself that I could talk about Jesus freely because this friend knew about my faith. The first session went smoothly enough, but that night I had a terrible dream of two I'm keeping this more PG for our younger crowd here, if we've got any disservice, which we do. Disturbing figures who were attacking me. I yelled out the name of Jesus, and immediately they disappeared. I awoke from that dream scared, but in awe of a name so powerful that satanic forces fled at its mention. So this is something that is relevant to me and my family as of late. Our, our kids just seem to be having a lot more bad dreams, and it's, you know, Lee and I aren't immune to that either. And so when that happens, every time we'll pray with them. And every time we pray, we ask for Jesus' help uh, because he's bigger, he's more powerful, he's stronger. And we teach them that, hey guys, you don't need mommy and daddy here to do that. You can actually pray for Jesus' help. And, and, and these dreams can go away and any kind of attack can go away because the power doesn't, it's not in you, it's in Jesus. You can ask him for help. Now, here's the thing, not every bad dream is demonically inspired. Some bad dreams are just bad dreams. But some bad dreams and fear um, that's instilled within us is the enemy seeking to sow seeds of fear in the children of God and the people of God. And so we want, we're trying to teach our kids that Satan has to flee before the name of Jesus when we call out upon his name in faith. Um, and so that's the idea here. Jesus is stronger. At the end of the day, um, Jesus has authority and is stronger than Satan, okay? We can call upon his name. Number four, and this kind of get drills down now into the heart of um, 
what Jesus is saying here that's kind of mysterious at face value about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Number four, witnessing the power of Christ, but denying the person of Christ is the sin that cannot be forgiven. Witnessing the power of Christ, but denying the person of Christ is the sin that cannot be forgiven. And as an addendum to that, I, I would say it's persisting in that heart posture of an of a ultimate antagonism and rejection of the power of God that proves Jesus' person is also key. And I'll, I'll elaborate on that in a little bit. So what is then the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that will not be forgiven? Well, to understand that, you've got to kind of press in a little bit to the nuance of the contrasts Jesus is making here between the blasphemy and sin that can be forgiven, and then on the other hand, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that can't. So he, he, he says it twice, and the second time around, he says, if you speak against the Son of Man, which is a, a reference to himself, if you blaspheme in that way, you can be forgiven, which is interesting, right? Because then he goes on to say, but if you speak against the Holy Spirit, you can't. So that's where perhaps some of the, um, the kind of the nugget of, of how we can understand this distinction comes through. Now, I will say that term, the Son of Man, is a little bit nebulous and ambiguous and um, hard to understand. Um, and that's not just me. Um, that's what scholars would say about it, because it's used in a diversity of ways throughout scripture to mean different things. Generally, it always has been understood to be a term, to, a messianic term that points to Jesus. But in terms of what aspect of his nature or personhood it describes, it's, it's kind of different from context to context. All right, so that actually is important. I'll get back to that in a moment. But so here's one suggestion. It could be here that it's most likely what Jesus is doing is he's contrasting the season of his ministry that he was operating more incognito, kind of under the radar. Um, where it was not as obvious and overt to everyone who he was. With that period of time later in his ministry, such as we're seeing here in our passage, where, man, the Holy Spirit's power was fully on display, right? Like how many times did Jesus early on heal someone and say, hey, don't share this publicly yet? Or my time has not yet come, right? And he refrains from some sort of performing some sort of miracle or is reluctant to do so, like with his mom asking him to turn the water to wine. But later in his ministry, you know, it's no holds barred, right? Like it's, he's just, he's just on display for all to see. The Holy Spirit's power is just manifest in incredible ways. And it seems very possible here that this is the distinction that Jesus is making when he talks about um, blasphemy against the Son of Man versus the Holy Spirit. Um, one commentator, I think, puts it really helpfully to say concisely what I'm trying to hear. R.T. France says, it's the difference between a failure to recognize the light and a deliberate rejection of it once it's recognized. Okay? So early on, people may have been rejecting Jesus, but not unlike the term, the Son of Man, which was a bit mysterious, it was kind of mysterious as to who he was. But that became less and less so and less and less of an excuse as his ministry went on evidenced by the, the Holy Spirit showing up in greater and greater power. So hence, the reason why Jesus is making this distinction, say, yeah, if you, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, though, the one who abides in and dwells within me, that's now making my, my personhood, who I am known in obvious and clear ways, that's the sin that cannot be forgiven, okay? So to kind of use from scripture a couple of different figures to illustrate that, even Peter, the apostle, one of Jesus' beloved disciples, in a sense, spoke against him when he rejected him three times when Jesus was taken in by the council 
of the high priest and the religious rulers and Peter's outside those courts and he denies him three times, right? He's speaking against him in a way. Um, and it's not to excuse him. There was a lack of faith there. But Peter also wasn't antagonistic toward Jesus. There was fear there. There was a lack of faith. But ultimately, he's forgiven and he repents, right? The Pharisees are in a very different place at this moment. The Pharisees are in a, a pretty dark place where they not only witnessed this power clearly on display, rejected the person of Jesus, but they're also attributing that power to the complete opposite source of God. That's a, that's a different ballgame, and that seems to be the distinction Jesus is making here. Another commentator puts it this way in, in summing up what blasphemy the Holy Spirit Maybe he may oversimplify, but I think it's helpful. He says, probably blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is nothing more or less than an unrelenting rejection of his, that is the Holy Spirit's advances. Unrelenting rejection. Again, that's where I think this idea of a persistence in a posture that is opposed to what God has clearly revealed is important in understanding what Jesus is talking about here with the unpardonable sin. Okay, so hopefully that helps clarify a little bit this, I, you know, what Jesus means here as he's addressing the Pharisees about this unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now I want to just in close draw a few conclusions for you or with you um, that come out of this um, idea of the unpardonable sin. Number one, why is it that this is unforgivable? Well, actually, I think the answer is pretty logical to that or for, is pretty logical for that question. That if you reject the Holy Spirit in Jesus, then you're rejecting the only one who can truly save. Right? This is where the exclusivity of Jesus to save comes in. It's where Peter in his sermon early on in Acts where he says there's no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. Then the name of Jesus Christ comes in. If you're rejecting the clear manifestation of Jesus confirmed by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you're rejecting that, well, then you're rejecting the only one who actually can save you because we can't save ourselves. Secondly, ultimately, um, God, only God knows our hearts. Only God knows who's committed this sin. It, it's helpful for those who hear these words spoken by Jesus, who read this text, um, to be confronted with that mirror of self-examination perhaps. But we need to be slow to judge, if judge at all, whether someone has committed this sin. And again, this is where that idea of persistence is important because we can hope that some of those Pharisees perhaps had a change of heart. Now, God's word also talks about how with the persistent rejection of God's revelation, there's a hardening of the heart. So it's not something I'd recommend if you're sitting here today saying, yeah, I'm here, but begrudgingly. Like, there is such a thing as uh, a point of, too, of go, having gone too far. There is such a thing as a hardness of heart. Yet, persistence in this posture is what is key, I think. When you look at how opposed the Apostle Paul was to the church and to Jesus initially, but yet he ended up coming around to a place where he no longer held that posture and he accepted Christ and was forgiven. So ultimately, only God can know who's committed this sin. We need to be slow to make that judgment. Number three, if you're worried that you've committed this sin, then you most likely have not. Okay, it means you have a sensitive conscience where you're concerned about your spiritual condition. Um, you probably don't have the desire to reject Jesus or to be antagonistic toward him. More likely, your reason for questioning that would be because you feel unworthy of him. Um, 
which needs to be dealt with, a part of your sanctification process, your process of growth, because that in itself is a form of pride and rejecting what Jesus has done for you. But it isn't a wholesale rejection of Jesus. It's just a place that Jesus needs to bind up some wounds. Um, and so God is not wanting you living on the bondage of the fear that maybe you've committed this. None of these Pharisees were worried that they'd blasphemed the Holy Spirit, okay? Um, they were just happy and content, at least in this moment, in this frame of rejecting Jesus and saying that the power was of the devil. And then fourthly, if this idea of there being a sin that can't be forgiven is kind of the glass half full pessimistic way to approach this, consider the glass, uh, sorry, the glass half empty, consider the glass half full, which is that if this is the only sin that can't be forgiven, consider the expansiveness and the extent of God's grace that any other sin can be forgiven. All right, in the history of the church, there have been other sins named as unforgivable, unpardonable sins, um, suicide, um, abortion, murder, divorce, but that's not in scripture. And more importantly, what it does is it undermines the expansiveness of God's grace. And so if you're in that place where you're worrying, man, I've done this in my life, I don't oppose Jesus, but I just don't think I'm worthy or that he'd accept me. You don't need to pay penance. You don't need to make up for it with good works. You don't need to self-loathe for some period of time so that God would empathetically enter in and say, you don't need to hate yourself anymore. The cross is enough. What God demonstrated on the cross, giving his son to die for your sins is enough to cover all and forgive any other sin than this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, a complete utter rejection of Jesus. That's how big and all-encompassing God's grace is. You'd have to resist him with an antagonism on par with the Pharisees here till your dying day for there to be something God could not forgive. And only at that point because you're rejecting the only one who can save. Okay? So with that, we're going to transition into a time of communion, which is um, where we remember this. Every week we do this at Terra because it's such a powerful um, and vivid illustration of what we were just talking about. 